0: I'm going to ask the guys to put a slide up on the screen, the first image, the next image. And does anybody know who this is? All right, G.I. Joe, I heard it. All right, so G.I. Joe is that series of action figures, and there was cartoons. Apparently it went before the 80s, but that's when it was really revived in the 80s. And and how many of you men, and women maybe, uh, it's going to be the 30 and 40-somethings, but how many of you played with G.I. Joe's as a kid? All right. All right. Keep your hands raised. Every eye, bow, head, right? now. Um, how many of you still play with G.I. Joe's? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I was a big fan of G.I. Joe's. Um, the opening theme song for the, the cartoon series, um, it had a catchy song. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, But at the end of the song, there was this voiceover narration, this deep voice, and uh, I can't do it with the cold, I realize, but but it said this, G.I. Joe is the code name for America's daring, highly trained, special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. And so it's a kid's show, and yet... And so how do you have a cartoon that's not PG-13 for kids that's showing this military fighting without blood and guts everywhere? Well, what they did was they used these red and blue laser guns, if you remember, and nobody really ever gets hit. Maybe buildings blow up and cars blow up, but it's pretty Pretty tame. And so, but every episode of, of G.I. Joe, it ended with this little public service announcement. And it might be, you know, not talking to strangers, don't play with fire, that kind of thing. Um, but at the end of each, of each of those PSAs, like Roadblock or Flint or whatever the G.I. Joe guy, he would tell them something. And then the kids would say, well, now we know. And then the G.I. Joe would say, and knowing is half the battle. Um, that was the big tagline of the PSAs. Well, so I, I found, I Googled this and you can go to the next slide. So if, according to GI Joe, this is kind of how it works. Knowing is half the battle. The other half is red lasers and blue lasers. Um, but all right, take that away before we lose them. All right. I'm glad we did the survey before this sermon. Uh, I'm not looking forward to the feedback, uh, but What we find in in Second Kings 18 and 19 is that Judah is facing the greatest threat the nation has ever known, and it's the threat of Assyria. They are a real-life cobra. Um, They are a ruthless, brutal, terroristic empire that is determined to rule the world their war machine has just chewed up nation after nation in this path of destruction. And most recently, the northern ten tribes of Israel that we saw last week in Second Kings 17, and they've scattered people that they've conquered, the ones that they haven't killed. They've scattered them across their vast empire, basically erasing any kind of sense of national identity that the people of any nation would have. And now... We find them, and they're poised to just roll over Jerusalem and Judah. And so what's what's going to be the key to the battle for this young king, Hezekiah, this godly king that we'll see? It's it's not going to be red lasers. (laughs) No, the key is going to be... And what's going to make their outcome different from all the other nations, and and this is a tremendous understatement, but it got me thinking about G.I. Joe, is knowing is half the battle. It's more than half the battle. I don't know what the percentage is, but this is what I mean, is that what's going to change the outcome for them is their knowledge of God. It's their understanding of God and their experience of God. It has the largeness of their view and knowledge of God. That's what's going to make all the difference. And I just say real quick, the bridge to us, the Bible makes it clear that we live in a war zone as Christians. We face three relentless enemies all the time. We face the world, we face the flesh, the devil, the scripture says. And so the world seduces our hearts to conform to its image. The devil uh, just plays with our mind and attacks our minds to get us to to doubt God. And And our flesh is always attacking our wills, trying to draw us away into indulgence. And so we live in this constant, constant war. And what's going to make the difference for us in this battle? It's going to be our knowledge of God. Our knowledge of God, that's what you students, as you go out, you high school graduates, you college students, as you phase into this new phase of life, the enemy is at work, he's prowling around like a lion, seeking to devour you. He already is, and he's going to continue to. And what you need is this robust knowledge of God. And we'll see how that shows up in our text this morning. There's a, there's a lot we can learn from this passage. We can learn a lot from the example of Hezekiah. So, and, I, and earlier in the week, that's kind of what I was planning to do here. And, and, and this is the most godly descendant of David that's going to sit on the throne of Judah until we get to Josiah, perhaps. But how does he handle the crisis? How does he prepare himself? What can we learn from even the mistakes he makes? But, but we could do those things. But more than anything, what we need to see in this narrative is God. He's the main player. He's the key actor. And we've seen this throughout Kings. And we're going to see Christ here. And so just keep your eyes open and see if you can, can see him in this, in this text. But the big idea is this, is that our knowledge of God and our relationship to God is what makes all the difference in this battle. It's, it's everything. It's the game changer. And so in, when the battle rages, what do we need to know about God? And we're going to just say four things this morning. What do you need to know about the Lord? The first thing you need to know about the Lord is that He is enough. He's enough. And there, there's, this, there's this fight before the fight with Assyria in, in kings, in, in, in Judah here. There's a battle for the hearts of the people of Judah that's already waging before the Assyrians become a dominant threat before Assyria ever breathes a threat, Satan has baited a hook for the nation. And so when Hezekiah takes the throne, the land is just full of idolatry and, and it is affecting every part of society. It's just, a, it's just woven into the fabric of life and culture in Judah. Is this idol worship? It's epidemic. And so, There's this bloody and costly war that's being fought, even in a time of peace and prosperity for the nation, for the souls of the people, their affections, their trust, their worship. And so I would just say there's application for us today that we live in a time of relative peace and prosperity in the West and America. And yet I would say there are casualties of a war all around us. We're in the midst of it brothers and sisters uh, this war being fought for souls and affections and trust and worship and so all right so we get into king first kings second kings 18 so while hosea is the king still the king in israel and he's still reigning so this is before they fall to assyria before the events of second kings 17 hezekiah takes the throne in judah we see this in verses 1 and 2 we read it a moment ago and hezekiah's father is ahaz remember ahaz that wicked wicked king, the most wicked king in the history of the southern tribes of Judah. He's a complete deadbeat as a dad, just as he is a failure as a king. And Hezekiah has grown up seeing his dad's sin up close and personal. He's Seen his spiritual rebellion against God, he saw his dad's complete disregard for the Lord, for the lord's worship, for the lord's temple, for god's word. He's, he saw the way he just brushed aside God's prophets when they come, came and confronted him. he He had a front row seat to watch his dad make compromises at every turn. He was just this moral jellyfish. He saw him negotiate with terrorists, whining and dining. With the Assyrians, he, he saw him sacrifice his own newborn brother to satisfy and appease this pagan god, Moloch. So he's a disaster of a king, but he's just a, even more of a train wreck as a father. And so given what we know about Hezekiah's dad and what his upbringing likely was and what he was exposed to, we expect to read verse 3 something like this. And Hezekiah did evil in the sight of the Lord just as his father did. He did not walk in the way of David, but walked in the ways of Ahaz, his father. That's not what we find. Instead, we find the most glowing evaluation of any king that we've seen so far in the book of Kings. Verse 3 again, just read it with me again. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that is that David, his father, had done. The gold standard. He meets it. And then there's no qualifications. No, no buts. No nevertheless. What we were so used, we're trained to expect. Oh, but he failed to remove the high places. But instead we read, for the first time... He removed the high places, finally. And he broke down the pillars and he cut down the Asherah, verse 4. How refreshing this is to read. And i just pause real quick. And one of the things Hezekiah's life teaches us is that we're not simply the passive victims of our circumstances. We're not simply products of our of our upbringings. I do not want to imply that, that, that your childhood and your upbringing doesn't have an impact on you. Or that you can't be sinned against by a parent or grandparent. And that can have lasting consequences in your life. I'm not denying that in the least. But I'm just saying no matter what kind of parents you had or have. Um, this doesn't mean that your life is doomed to repeat the trajectory of your parents' life. God's grace is greater than not just your sin, but than your parents' sin. And amen. That's right. And so Hezekiah teaches us this. So his life is not patterned after his daddy has. It's patterned after David, the man after God's own heart. And so, so we find Hezekiah. He bulldozes the high places or whatever the equivalent was in that time. And he demolishes these other idols. But he doesn't stop there. He's, he even goes after something we haven't even read about yet in Kings. There's this sacred Jewish relic in verse 4. And he broke in pieces the bronze servant that, serpent that Moses had made at God's direction. And I can't go back to Exodus and recount the story you can note the footnote and go back and read this account. But for until those days, back in Kings 18.4, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. So what this was, was this was bronze servant that God used to save and deliver his people. And it was supposed to be, you would have think that it would be this reminder to God's people of that salvation comes by, by trust and faith in God alone. That's what it should have reminded it of, but instead it had become this object of superstitious worship, a relic. And so, and you think, compared to Baal worship and the high places and child sacrifice, it seems like a kind of a relatively minor thing. But it's not in Hezekiah's mind. He he smashes it and he turns it into scrap metal. And he does. He does what we should do with anything in our lives that comes between us and God and trust in God alone. We need to see it for what it is and we need to destroy it. And so why, but what, why is Hezekiah doing these things? Why is he doing this? Because he knows what other kings before him didn't know and he believes it deeply. is what I said. Is the Lord is enough. He's enough. He alone Deserves our trust, our worship, our satisfaction, our delight, our affection, our obedience. God alone. And so you see in verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him and among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. It's his confidence in God alone that sets him apart as a king. Solomon held fast to his wives, if you remember. That's the same expression. But here, Hezekiah, he held fast to his all-sufficient Lord. God was enough to him. And because the Lord was enough to him, he gladly obeys God's word. Verse 6, he did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. As a result, the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And so... Again, his dad thought he needed gods. His dad thought he needed these political arrangements and maneuvering and allies with pagan nations. And he had been in cahoots with Assyria. But not Hezekiah, verse, the end of verse 7. Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. And he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. He regains the territory that was lost by his father. And he and he sounds like David even in battling the Philistines, doesn't he? This is a it's, to, it's meant to point back to David. But this is what I want you to see: all the reforms, all the revival, all the idol smashing, all the restored worship. And Second Chronicles twenty nine describes more twenty nine thirty thirty one. Temple is the temple doors are opened back up. The temple that Ahaz closed, he opens up. The priests are in commission. The sacrifices are reinstated. But all the disregard for Syria. What's driving it? What is it? It's Hezekiah's conviction again, deep-seated conviction that the Lord alone is God and He is enough. He's enough, and that's that settled, prepara- settled conviction in their hearts that prepares them for the crisis that awaits them with the Syria. I just say real quick for us is it, at all times in life. Even when things are going well, we need to have this, this, our lives well stocked with this large view of God, but particularly when times of crisis come. Not just an academic, cerebral theology of God, but a shoe leather theology of God. You don't just need to know the facts and philosophies about God. You need to know you need a knowledge of God that translates into holding fast and clinging and loving and being devoted to and obeying and depending upon Him. And that's what we see in Hezekiah's life devotion to God and knowledge of God that leads us to smash the competing idols of our hearts. A tepid watery, refrigerating, refrigerator magnet, Facebook quote kind of faith in God isn't going to cut it when trials come. It's not enough just to speak Southern Bible Beltese. God is a, the, the God has a big piece in the pie that's my life kind of thinking it's not going to last when the troubles come, when trials come we need a robust vibrant experiential practical belief deep seated belief that god is sufficient he alone is enough and so if you don't have that you're going to you're going to run to other things when trouble does come and you're going to If God just has his place in your life, this little segregated part of your life when times are good, well, when trouble hits, you're going to view God like he's this pesky little two-year-old that is in the way. And you need to push him aside so you can get on and figure out how to fix your life. But God needs to be so large in your life so that when trouble comes, you do what Hezekiah is going to do in just a moment. He's going to go straight to him. What else is he going to do? All right, so know that the Lord is enough. Second thing you know about, need to know about the Lord to be prepared for battle is know that the Lord is reliable. Reliable. I don't mean just like your vehicle, like sort of reliable. Now I mean he is able to be completely relied upon or he's trustworthy. He's worthy of all of our trust, faith, confidence. And I'll show you why I'm saying this in a moment. And this, we'll see this all the way from verse 13 to 37. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, is the king of Assyria at this time, and he has no intention of letting Hezekiah's little rebellion go unpunished. And so he 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 might Hezekiah might start a rebellion that kind of spills over into other nations. And he's not going to have that. So in seven oh one BC, verse thirteen, he came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And he goes on and he makes his his headquarters, his regional headquarters in Lachish, which is just 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He wrote in his annals, these are in the Assyrian, Assyrian writings, he, he wrote that he had Hezekiah, quote, shut up in Jerusalem, his royal capital, like a caged bird. And so with the Assyrian army at Jerusalem's doorstep, Hezekiah, Hezekiah balks. His confidence in the Lord, it, it temporarily waffles. As we'll see, he, he allows himself to be caught in a trap of his own making. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: 25, the, the fear of man lays a snare. And his fear of the king of Assyria it ensnares him. And so he sends a message to the king of Assyria, confessing his sin of rebellion against him. Verse 14, he writes to the king of Assyria, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. That's not good. He's much more like Ahaz than he is like David in this moment. But I just encourage you, put yourself in his shoes. I mean, they're about to just demolish Jerusalem, obliterate them. And so Sennacherib demands over 11 tons of silver and over a ton of gold. It's so much that the only way Hezekiah can pay this, this tribute money is to just completely clean out the temple and palace treasuries. In fact, he has to go to the temple and melt the gold off of the gold-covered uh, doors and pillars of the temple just to have enough gold to pay this tribute to the king. But you notice what's absent here. There's no seeking of God for help. He just quickly concedes and pays tribute. He thinks this is this may buy them some time. But the Assyrians, they don't play by rules. And Hezekiah's tribute, it really ends up just wetting Sennacherib's appetite. And so rather than withdrawing after they pay this tribute, the king Sends his chief military officers, and they're escorted escorted by this great army, verse 17 says, to quote, negotiate with Hezekiah. (laughs) And so, rather, so, so Hezekiah sends three of his most trusted officials, and they meet. Together, and this is this happens by verse seventeen by the conduit of the upper pool, and this is a public meeting place. But it's also significant because it was here thirty years earlier that Isaiah confronted Hezekiah's father Ahaz and said, "You trust in the Lord, or the Assyrians are coming." And the Assyrians have come, and they're there. And so there's this this leader, this lead officer, who's kind of the chief cup of The the Rabshaka that's his. That's not his name, that's his title. It's, he's this skilled propagandist and he has this concoction as he's speaking to Hezekiah's men. He blends together truths and half-truths and lies and threats and promises and mockery. And his whole point is he's trying to undermine and erode the people's confidence both in God and God's king, Hezekiah. And, and and he's he speaks the Hebrew language and he's well versed in all things of uh, related to Judean life and culture and so he's smooth. And you look at his opening question, verse 19: On what do you rest this trust of yours? You have no basis of confidence in the Lord. This is a dagger that's just aimed at the heart of the people. And so he makes several arguments, and some of them are valid. He mocks their, their weak and pathetic defenses. And first, in verse 20, he you say, you're, you're only armed with mere words. You have nothing against us. You can't fight us. Verse 21, he mocks them because they've allied with Egypt, which was wrong. And he, says, he calls Egypt a broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. They're not going to do any good. And he's right. Second argument he makes is he claims that they've actually offended their Lord, the Lord that they're supposedly relying upon. How? Because Hezekiah has angered God by removing all of those high places and forcing the people to worship in the temple alone. So he's speaking as a pagan, but he's really probably tapping into an underlying concern among the people of Judah that Hezekiah's reforms, maybe they went a little too far. Maybe they've really ticked some of these gods off. Maybe they've even offended the Lord. And so he's again, he's just pecking away, trying to just get at their faith and confidence in God. Third argument he makes is he points out again that Judah's resistance is futile. You don't have the firepower to 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 even possibly fight us. And he says in jest, he, he offers Hezekiah in verse 23, 2,000 horses, if they can get enough soldiers to ride them. He knows they can't. They don't don't have enough, m- enough men to, to put on these horses to fight, even if they gave them the horses. And then finally, the fourth argument is he claims that Sennacherib is an agent of the Lord. And Verse 25, moreover, is is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And the claim has some credibility to it. I mean, Isaiah has been been warning Jerusalem for over 30 years that the Lord would bring the king of Assyria to wreak havoc on the land if they didn't repent. And so maybe Rabshakeh, the Rabshakeh here, maybe he heard some of Isaiah's sermons, heard it quoted. And he's using it against them to just erode their confidence in the Lord. And at this point, Hezekiah's representatives, they interrupt. They say, No, 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 this isn't working. Verse 26 they say, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. They're saying, Use the diplomatic language, not the language that our people speak. Let's just talk, you and I, face to face. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. This is a public place. They don't want everybody listening in. This is just between the officials. But the Assyrians say, uh-uh, uh-uh. This is part of their plan. This is part of their propaganda. That This is verbal terrorism. This is like ISIS taking over CNN's airwaves and just blasting out their threats and their terroristic agenda to to the nations. So verse 27, then... The rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to these men? These honorable middle class men sitting around me on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. What he's saying is if we lay siege to this city, life's going to get really hard for these commoners. He's trying to play and pander to the common man. And so then in verse 28, he really starts speaking directly to the crowd. Now can't, we just gotta move quickly. Just, but look at verse 28. He stood and he called out with a loud voice in the language of Judah. So he's talking to all of these people that are listening and gathering. And over and over, just, just, I'm just scanning down. He says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Verse 30, verse 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah. And then he goes on to describe what a wonderful place it will be for them if they will just concede defeat and, 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 and the Assyrians will give them a new land and their own vineyards and their own olive trees and their own cisterns and their own fig trees. Oh, it's just going to be lovely if you would just let us take you over. He's lying through his teeth. But he's doing it in order to just dismantle, again, the people's confidence in God. But in verse 33, there's a line that's crossed. And, and this negotiator begins to directly attack the Lord. Verse 33, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And then he rattles off the names of these bigger, badder cities that have, and their gods that have been defeated by the Assyrians. And then he asked in verse 35, how then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? And what he's saying is, your God is nothing, no different than any of those other gods that we've wiped out. And your city is no different from any of those other cities. Their gods didn't protect them. Your God can't protect you against us. And that taunt proves to be their fatal mistake. And so with that assertion that the public talks come to an abrupt end, verse 36, at Hezekiah's direction, the people were silent. And they answered him not a word. I just think what a scene that would have been. They're expecting this rousing response, these Assyrian agitators. And here, people just don't pay him any, give him any response. The best response to a blasphemer is generally that, it's just silence. Don't answer them. So Hezekiah's men return to the king. They give their report and they come with torn clothes just to show their grief. Just as a sign of the trouble that they're in as a people. It's bad, folks. Judah's in real, real deep trouble. And this is what I want you to see, though, from this section about the Lord. And, and it's seen in this way, that the chief target of the, in this attack is the people's trust in God the Rabshakeh is trying to undermine their confidence in the Lord. He's looking for a weak spot in the spiritual defenses of the people. And what we need in times of battle, in times of crisis, in times of trouble, is a knowledge that God is fully able to be relied upon. He is completely reliable, completely trustworthy. We need to have the the the, the, uh, the, the those pillars sunk deep into our souls but what happens our ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, well, he's always he's like a, a rabid pit bull just running along the fence of of our faith and he's looking for a weak spot a place where he can compromise our defenses and he's looking and trying to find weakness in our faith in god and he's going, wants to exploit it and attack us there that's what he does I mean, I just let me just give you one example of how this shows up, and I'll try to do this quickly. How unbelief shows up in our lives. Unbelief is really a root of all sin. But just one one example is, is is worry. It's worry. We we've sang these songs It's what made me think about it. My anxious heart. Oh, we have anxious hearts, don't we? Some of us more than others. This is some for some of us. This is the this is one of those sins that we've battled our whole lives, and we'll probably battle till our are grave in an acute way. But unbelief is the root of all anxiety. And you see it in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, and throughout this section in the Sermon on the Mount. You can turn there if you want with me. But Matthew 6, Jesus says in verse 25, he says, I'm just going to have to kind of scan it. He says, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 7, which one of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. And then verse, in, in the middle of that, in verse 30, he makes it clear. He makes it explicit that that, that that anxiety is rooted in unbelief. In verse 30 he says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And then he says what? Oh, you of little faith. we we how do we battle this unbelief that is the root of our anxiety we battle it by the power of the spirit and the word and so the enemy our enemy comes and he throws throws the mud of of this the temptations to unbelief on the windshield of our faith and it and it's hard to see and we get scared and yet we use the windshield wipers of the promises of god with the washer fluid of the Holy Spirit's help, and we wash that away. That's what we need. And so this is what it looks like in just practical ways. If you're anxious, maybe you've got a meeting tomorrow and you are scared to death about how it's going to go. You've got to meet with somebody. You've got to discuss a hard thing. You battle unbelief with the promise of God. Isaiah 41.10, fear not. I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God I will help you I will strengthen you I will uphold you If you're anxious about being too weak to go on in some some trial some struggle some relational difficulty some some uh, sickness whatever it is I just can't go on another day then you battle that unbelief with the promise Paul says my grace God says my grace is sufficient for you my power is perfected in weakness 2 Corinthians 12, 9, or Deuteronomy 33, 25. As your days demand, so shall your strength be. If you're anxious about decisions that you have to make, graduates, if you're anxious about your future, what's coming, but it it could be anybody. You battle that unbelief with the promise of Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Or if you're anxious about facing opposition, you battle that unbelief in God with the promise that if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. Or if you're anxious about being sick, if health problems just frighten you, your own health, your children's health, you battle that unbelief with the promise that of Romans 5.3-5, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. If you're anxious about getting older, you battle unbelief with the promise of Isaiah 46.4. Even to your old age, I am He. And And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. If you're anxious about dying... Death is just, even as a believer, you, you, it's not that you lack confidence that God will ultimately you'll be in His presence, but you're afraid of death. You battle unbelief with the promise, Romans fourteen eight and 9. If we live, we live in the Lord. If we die, we die in the Lord. So that when, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. If you're anxious about your own assurance of salvation, battle that unbelief with the promise. Philippians 1, six: he who began a good work and you will complete it until the day of Christ. And he who calls you is faithful. He will do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. So you see, again, the enemy is going to be poking and prodding and and. and trying to find a weakness in our confidence in God. But, but what I really want you to see is you need to know that the Lord is able to be fully relied upon in all things. That's, that's what I want you to see about God. That's what we learn about him here. So know that God is enough. Know that God is reliable. Second, third thing we need to know about the Lord is the Lord is, the Lord is a safe house for us. He's a safe house and we get into chapter 19 and I'm going to have to step on the gas here a little bit, but he's a safe place for us to go when the storm winds begin to howl, the clouds begin to form and the rains begin to fall. And so look at what Hezekiah does. He hears the report from his men and he, verse one of 19, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. He runs to God, he runs to God, and, and, and he, he does, he seeks a word from God through the prophet Isaiah in verse 2. You know, you've seen this relationship between the kings and the prophets and kings, and it's not been a good one. Generally, the kings are being rebuked and confronted by the prophets, and the kings are trying to shut the mouths of the prophets, and the kings are killing the prophets. But here you have this king who's seeking out a word from God's prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And, the, and we have this account of Hezekiah, it's in Chronicles, and an almost identical account to what we read in chapters 18 and 19 of Kings is found in Isaiah. And so Isaiah, the prophet's ministry, is running concurrent here. And so Hezekiah sends word to Isaiah, and he's honest. Verse 3, this is the day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. And his plea with Isaiah, the anchor that he's holding on to is this, is that it's God's glory and honor that's at stake. And so verse 4, It may be that the Lord your God, Isaiah, heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left so he's asking Isaiah to pray. He knows that he's God's mouthpiece. And so, so Isaiah's response comes quickly and with divine authority. Verse 6, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard. And then he shows that the real problem is not, is not between Hezekiah and Sennacherib. It's between the Assyrians and God. And he says, they have reviled or blasphemed me. And so God's going to take care of them. He's going to drive them out of Jerusalem. He's going to, he's going to finish Sennacherib off in time. And so they just step up their attacks. Now they're not just attacking Hezekiah. They're going directly at God. Verse 10, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the king, into the hand of the king of Assyria. And so, Verse eleven: Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Saying, "Times expired, folks. Jerusalem's about to be a little grease spot in the Assyrian Empire. We're about to, It's about. It's over." And so we now we read this from a safe distance, and that's kind of a neat story. And maybe maybe it is to you. It's neat, neat to me. And and but you put yourself in the again in the shoes of Hezekiah. These threats that are coming, you consider the feelings that he's feel, feeling. Consider the wrestlings in his soul, the sleepless nights, the loss of appetite. You know how it is when you when we have our little things. This is on a scale that we can't even comprehend. This threat, and then we come to one of my favorite images in all of Scripture. I mean, I have my favorite men of the Bible. I have my favorite women of the Bible. I have my favorite. Um, events of the Bible. This is one of my favorite little snapshots in the scripture. I wish I could just get a, a Polaroid of this. Verse 14. Look at it. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. It contains this threat. And he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. What a great picture. What's he doing? He's just... It's just expressing this profound sense of desperation and neediness for God. (laughs) He's in great distress and he just pours out his soul before the Lord. God, I I don't know what to do. I don't have the resources. We We can't do this. We need you, God. How often have you spread your troubles before the Lord like that? I realize ours aren't on the scale of this, but you know what? i found in my own life, it's oftentimes little inconveniences that I'm less likely to run to God with spread before Him. And and it's not that He doesn't already know about them, but it, He commands us to cast our cares upon Him for He cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7. So even as we talk about this whole process with our churches going through this Vision 2020, I mean, I, got, I brought it up here just to show you. This is... This is the these are the results of that survey. Five hundred pages of comments and 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 it's very good feedback and I'm not trying to compare the threat of the Assyrian king to the, the, the survey results. That's not my point. But here our, it's really not. Um but but what what I'm saying is we don't need to come to this like God wants us to trust in a planning process or God wants us to depend upon some how-to book of church or, or some charismatic personality to lead us. No, what does God want? He wants us, in a sense, to spread that before the Lord. Say, God, help. Help. We, we don't know what to do. We've seen this in Kings, but our eyes are on you. And so, so we prays before, before the Lord and, 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 and we need to do that. We need to come before the Lord for the glory of your name, God. Help us. And that's what's driving us prayer. It's it's God again. It's God's glory, and He's begging God, "Incline your ear." Verse sixteen, "Hear, open your eyes, see." I mean, there's this desperation. Here are the words, though, that mock the living God. That's what He's so concerned about. It's not just it's not just uh, him his problem. It's it's God's names at stake, and so He prays. To God, God responds with the word through Isaiah the prophet. And he, his answer involves these three things. He basically says, you know what, Sennacherib is just an instrument in the hand of God. He's nothing. He's nothing. Verse 28, another great image. That God's going to take this raging, fire-breathing, uh, arrogant Assyrian king, Sennacherib, and he's going to lead him with a ring through his nose and his lip all the way back to Nineveh like an animal or a slave. He's going to just take him and take him back. Take him out of the land. You know, I mean that's that's even for us as believers. That's a comfort that one day the Lord is the Lord uh, uh, or that the Lord already has a hook in the nose and the lip of our arch-enemy Satan. He's not free. He is, does nothing outside of the will of our Father. Um so so Sennacherib 's going to be taken care of the remnant of israel's going to prosper again verses twenty nine to thirty one the assyrians won 't touch jerusalem verses thirty two to thirty four but it, just what I wanted to see what is your default in times of crisis? Where do you go? Do you run to God? do you spread your trouble before him do you Do you take refuge in him and his promises? Do you pour out your soul to him honestly and begging for his help or do you turn in on yourself? Do you try to fix your own situation? Do you wallow in self-pity? Do you trust in money to fix your troubles? Do you trust in medication to numb your pain? Do you take refuge in food? Do you trust in the opinions of people? Do you just try to work harder? You just try to weather the storm through vacations or entertainment or distraction? We need to trust the Lord. He is a safe house for us. In all times, but particularly we find him to be so in times of trouble. Last, last thing we need to know of the Lord is this: know that the Lord is mighty to save. He's mighty to save, and we see it in the closing verses of chapter 19. The Lord fulfills every promise he makes with precision, and and it's recorded for us with great brevity, though. But look, verse 35. And that night, that very night, the angel of the Lord sent out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So those who weren't killed in, their, in the night, they, they slept until morning and they wake up and there are dead bodies everywhere. And, and, and so verse 36, Sennacherib quickly breaks camp. He hightails it out of here and then, and then there's just one loose end to tie up and that's what, what about Sennacherib? The blasphemer. Over 20 years later, he's back in Nineveh, which is where God said he would take him out. And two of his sons become jealous that their younger brother is their dad's favorite. And so they plot and they stab their dad while he's worshipping. The text is very explicit. While he's worshipping in the house of his God, verse 37. And from other accounts we know uh, we, we discover that after they stab him, they push over the gigantic statue of his God on him. And so that's an ironic picture that this great king of Assyria who boasted that Hezekiah's God was utterly helpless, not only is routed with the t- movement of, of Yahweh's finger, but, but he's crushed to death by his own man-made idol that he's devoted his life to. Well, did you see Jesus in the story? Did you see him? It's like, where's Waldo or something? But what gives, what gives him away is not the red and white striped hat and shirt. Um, we find Jesus by looking at what he's doing in the story. What is he doing? He's saving. He's delivering. Verse 35, look with me again. And that night, the angel... Of the Lord sent out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyrians. If you understand your Old Testament theology, that angel of the Lord is, is Christ. It's pre incarnate Christ. He's here, he's killing in order to save his people. Later, the incarnate Christ came and he died in order to save his people. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is saving. He is mighty to save. The salvation of Judah was sovereign grace. They did nothing to earn it. They they didn't pick up a sword, pick up a shield. They just just, God won the victory. The salvation of sinners through Jesus' death and resurrection is also of God's sovereign grace. We don't do anything to merit it. We don't do anything to accomplish it. It is simply a gift that we receive by faith. And so... As those who have been saved by Jesus, how do we respond? We respond with praise and thanksgiving to God and we respond by proclaiming their salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have tasted of the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the grace that is ours through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. He died not for his sin, but he died for our sin. He absorbed the wrath that we deserved. And he was laid in a grave. And on the third day, he he was raised to life. And through him then, you hold out to us life, eternal, abundant life, if we would receive this gift of salvation that Jesus came to accomplish. And so if there's anyone here today who not, does not know that salvation from their sin, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they wouldn't sleep on it another night, but they would turn to you and, and pray to you and ask for you to forgive their sins and to give them eternal life through Jesus Christ. But for all of us, God, I pray that the sweetness of the salvation that we did not accomplish on our own, the salvation that we did not deserve, did not earn, that we would be so overwhelmed by this reality, God, that you would just just help our hearts now to overflow, even in praise as we sing, and as we talk with one another this morning, and as we pray in our classes, and as we eat meals together as whatever we got going on today that our conversation would be flavored with the, the salvation of our lord and that we would proclaim that message so that others might believe in him too we ask in Jesus name amen